Welcome everybody to Forging Brains Podcast. I'm Riley Kirkpatrick here with my co-host Gavin Cooper. Tonight we got a pretty special guest. We got old Tom Peterson. Tom has been on the AFA team, the WCB team, and he has won multiple titles, including international titles. So we're pretty lucky to have Tom with us tonight, taking the time. Thanks for joining yeah, us, thank Tom. You. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, that's great. So, man, how have you been? Is it pretty damn cold there right now? Yeah, we're having a good winter to start it off. Like, uh, we just got another four or five inches today, and temp's kind of been floating around the 20 to negative 5 since uh, since probably for the last six weeks or so, five, six weeks. So Yeah, yeah I'd say good. that's pretty damn cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I like it, though. So How do you get... <laughs> How do you want to like go out and shoot horses in that kind of weather? Um, it's a, just a different challenge, you know. You don't sweat as much. Um, like today <laughs> we were shooting, and it looked like we were stuck inside of a snow globe. You know, it was pretty yeah. cool. Oh, are you so. outside still? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Really? I don't, we didn't shoot a single horse today inside today, and we did uh, five or six full sets and three or four trims. So. Oh man. Yeah, like I guess Brave it's just a element. different deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's the Viking in me. I guess I don't know. Oh, yeah, I couldn't do it just standing out in the rain, though. Just like, <laughs> yeah, the just rain. Just doing I... five sets in the rain, just getting <laughs> soaked. <laughs> no, I can't. Yeah, I can't do the rain. Like I'm a quitter when it comes to the rain. But like the snow falls and you don't really get that wet, you know. Yeah, so, I suppose if it's point. 20 degrees and snowing, it's different than 32 degrees snowing here, where it's damn near just the same as rain yeah yeah like it's got to be pretty cold here to be um to the point where we got to wear gloves and stuff like most of the day i didn't even wear gloves like it's it's a dry cold which whatever that means you know it's not as bad like if you go to minnesota or something like that like it feels 20 degrees colder at the same temp yeah real cold man So yeah. you've been probably pretty busy practicing. Has that been cutting into your snowmobile time then, huh? Um, I practiced a good bit for convention, nothing like crazy, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where I like to get up early and practice when I practice. Um, and so it, it really isn't that much of a change if I'm practicing a bunch or not. You know, if, if uh, you know, something big's going on like um, convention, then you want to get in the fire, you know, four or five days a week at least, you know, just to get everything figured out, get the processes, get the the sizes down, you know, get the rhythm of it. So, so you like to do yeah. that before you go to work? Yeah, yeah, I like I like the warm up aspect of it. Like, uh, do that, get a good sweat on, and then, you know, go do your day's worth of work. And if, depending on how the morning went, like if it went pretty shitty, you know. You stew on it all day, and you get back to the house, and you get back in the shop, and try to right some wrongs. You try know. to make it better. Yeah, yeah, and like, it's kind of good for the brain. I feel like too, because it's like having that second go, you know, at the contest. Like, if you're at a contest where you get two shoeing goes in a day, it's great because the mistakes you made the first go that you got pointed out to you, you can go through and fix them and see what you can do with that information. 
it's the same thing. Like you practice in the morning, if you have some major mistakes happening that pisses you off, you stew on it all day long. You think about how to make it better, how to get around them or not have them happen to start with. And then when you get home, you have like a game plan on something to do to get around it, you know, and see if it works. It's a pretty so, good uh, point because Riley and I were just talking, so we're going to do a couple goes this weekend, and we were going to try and do, like, one of the two and forward and then one of the roadster, but if we do kind of one of each or whatever, it's going to kind of – you might not be able to fix what we messed up on the first one. Kind of yeah, like what exactly. you're saying like there. Whenever, yeah, whenever I sit down and make a shoe, like for convention this year, um, for the specialty, I'd just spend a week on one shoe. I would make that one shoe all week long and dial that thing in, get my sizes down, get my punches and tools set up um, to the point where you don't have any questions. You don't make the same mistakes the third day that you made on the first day. You know, So you're starting to critique your, your mistakes even further than just making two or three shoes. You know, When you get to the sixth or seventh shoe in a row, you're really getting a rhythm. You're really getting a, a pace set on how to make it and be able to dissect it. You know, and then you skip onto that. And then when you leave it, even if it's a couple of weeks before you make another one of those shoes, it's so well ingrained in you from that week, you can, re you can refer to so much more information, I feel like. So how no, far out are you starting? Um, it varies on the contest and like the difficulty of it. Like if there's shoes that I've made before or not. Um, yeah. But like, I don't know, like, I'd say probably a you know a month to six weeks out. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen you make one the night the day before. We we, yeah. went, we went to Sheridan and you yeah. like won the class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I imagine it doesn't always work that that way. No, but it doesn't. No. Don. Yeah. I I we we dove into it right away, but it's great. I think so. You're saying you could make probably the same amount, say it's a, a roadster, just for say, and you're starting to make your, your shoe pile. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to make 20 roadsters, just using easy numbers, in between starting for that contest and before the like contest day, you think if you made those 22, 20 roadsters in like two 10 chunks instead of just sporadically mm -hmm. throughout, you're going to get more out of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like... Um, I feel like if you make, so like what everybody wants to do when they get in the shop, right? Is they, if they got five shoes, they got to make for a contest coming up, they're going to make one shoe, maybe two shoes of the same shoe, and then they're going to get bored and they're going to move on to the next one. When reality, they still left a bunch of mistakes on that second shoe that they didn't, you know, either zone in on or, fix. you know, fully fix. Yeah. So the way I see it is if you make them consecutively in a row, like that's what we typically do in practices Two teams like the team practices is we never just do in a day because we typically do three goes in a day. We don't do one of each. We do two or three of the same discipline. You know what I mean? Yeah. And those are, those are obviously then the mistakes that you're going back to fix. Those are mistakes that happen pretty early in the process then, huh? Yeah. Sometimes like, uh, I don't know, like, I feel like once you get into that fifth shoe, you're starting to come to size, um, have a process down, um, get a, a, a feel for the shoe on how much to draw or not draw or, 
um, stand up for a hockey stick, stuff like that. So you get more comfortable with it so you can start to get more relaxed and get more stuff done in one heat. And then you can take and go from there to just further advance the process. You know? Makes sense. No, and so that's, you're starting to like cut things out then after that that are going to start being like, I guess things that like, would you say that like, you know, you're going to rasp out or things that you just like, yep. like that, that's always really hard for me. So like that's literally me and Gavin were just talking about it when you, when you got on is like, we've just been making roadsters all week, sending them to each other and just mm -hmm. trying to like dial down through the process. And that's one of the hardest things for me is widest point to widest point on the roadster. I feel like mm -hmm. is drawing it enough. And like, especially the lateral side, just like, it's just going to be chunky as shit. And so mm -hmm. it's like it, that, like it probably would help me more to just pile through probably four or five of them in the afternoon instead of just one or two of those damn things. Yeah. yeah. And I feel but like a is, lot of it, it's a, it's a hard thing to know. Yeah. And I feel like with the roadster specifically in any like a uh, uh, very sectiony type shoe, um, you got to know how much you can take with the rasp and, and how close to get it to hammer finished in the sense of like, if you get it really close hammer finished, then you can well, just use your ass to accentuate that line. You know, my goal always is to get as hammer finished as possible. Uh, and then it takes less time to rasp and you have less massive mistakes to try to take out. Um, I feel like there's two types of competitors. Like there's the smashers and bashers that just fly through the shoe really quickly, leave a bunch of mistakes so that they can get to the vice and fix it. The, yeah, the, the negative that I see in that is the fact that if it's a hammer finish class, you're SOL. You know what I mean? Like you can't undo that type of mentality, right? So if you're the type of mentality though that likes to hammer finish your shoes, um, they take a little bit longer, but there's less rasping to do. And then that guy is equally going to get done with the same amount of time, just less time in the vice. And so when it turns on to be a hammer finish class, that dude's going to do really well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, like, with those type of shoes, like you're talking about, like, you can either take the rasping effort that you take to uh, make it look okay and fix some section mistakes, or you can take that same effort and you can accentuate the section and make it really stand out and really pop by just taking that same effort and not having to take a bunch of mistakes out. Because rasping essentially sucks. It massively you know. sucks. <laughs> it is. Rasping is like grinding, right, Riley? <laughs> Oh, I'm so bad at both at both of them. Like it pisses me off. Yeah. Like, like every stroke, I'm like son of a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, why, yeah. why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> you start. You start but, second like, guessing and, like, life choices. Oh, like I also get stuck in this fucking watchmaker mind where it's like I. I mean, you, you. I'm sure you've seen me do it. Like where it's like I'm, I'm bad about like all of a sudden it's like. I'm thinking way too far ahead and I'm trying to make each step kind of nice. And it's like, it's not fucking working out for me sometimes, you know? So like yeah. that's, we're all struggling a class. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like we've, we've had that conversation a couple of times where like not every yeah. part of the piece of the puzzle has to be perfect to move on because they're either better off not being perfect because they get messed up later on down the road, or it actually helps them become better through the process. Yeah. But it's, it's so hard to know that sometimes <laughs> of like, so that's yes. like this, this learning process this week is like, if you put, once you put your fuller in, in your roadster, the lines are all there pretty much mm -hmm. like, and you can't 
fudge with them too much after that, you know, like it's kind of like you're, you have to rasp on them or something. So it's like, that's been the hard part for me is knowing when, when to, where to put those fucking lines in before I put yeah. my, my fullering in. And, and that's so just it, making, yeah, it's been making roasters after hard. roasters. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So man, yeah, we got, we got off a little sidetrack. Tom, let's uh, introduce kind of, I know you aren't the type of guy to brag on yourself, but let's uh, hear about what you've done. Be a good time to let, let you brag on yourself. Um, yeah. How many, uh, how long have you been competing in the, like the WCB? Uh, the first contest for the WCB that I ever went to, um, I think it was in 2011 in Madison and Gene Leisure was judging and I just went and watched. Um, the guy that I apprenticed with for the most of the time that I apprenticed, um, I wouldn't say talk negative about competing and stuff like that, but he definitely didn't have anything good to say about it. Um, yeah. Or making shoes or any of that kind of stuff. And so I kind of wanted to just go see it and get comfortable with it um, and see what I was going to get into. And then the, the first one that I actually went to and competed at was, I think, in 2012, I think, in Eureka, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, since uh, 2012. And then how long did it take you to move, like, through the ranks until you became uh, up to, like, Category 4, essentially? Yeah, yeah. So the – I want to say it was the, f- the first year I did all of them to make the year end. I won Category 1. And then one category two, and I kind of, I kind of made a mistake. Like so, when I was competing in category two, I I went to the first category two. I think I did. I I won, and so I thought you were yep. supposed to have to move up. So then I went category three, the next one, and oh. sure shit, if I didn't win, I won the three like first bat. And so, yeah. after talking with Craig and figuring out like what the heck to actually do with it, like stayed in. I either I stayed in the twos for the rest of the year and just kept going there. Or I jumped up to the threes that year and won the threes. But um, I want to say it was 2014. Um, I made the the WCB team for 2015. So went and got that in my category three, and then uh, was category four after that, and won the first national title with uh, the WCB in 2016. So the first year it's I think it was quick. In category four or so. Yeah. Yeah, just moving so, up quick and then winning. Yeah, yeah so yeah. four years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. How many times have you been on the team then? Uh, I was on the team five years in a row uh, from 15 to 19. Did that. And is this your first year on the AFT? Yep. Yep. Nice. Yeah. So. Like your first year yeah. when you were doing like the Category 1s, was your like practice regimen pretty similar to the way it is now or how much has it differed from when you were first getting going to where you are now like how much work did you have to put in then you know because you said you won category one for the year like maybe it could be helpful for other guys that are trying to you know get in yeah like i i would say that i pretty much just um like i've always kind of been called a workaholic so it's kind of hard for me to justify if it was a lot of practice or not. Cause in the sense of like, I went and shot horses all day and then I'd sit in the forge for a couple hours in the evening or something like that after dinner, or, you know, stuff like that. I didn't, I didn't sit and watch TV and like, you know, just hang out and stuff. I was productive. So I mm-hmm. just stayed kind of doing that. I didn't do it every night, but, um, 
the way that it's different, I'd, I'd say, is I do more morning practices now um, in the sense of, like, I don't want it to interfere with spending, like, spending time with, you know, my wife um, in the evenings and stuff. She's not a morning person, so she's not going to be awake at that time anyway. So um, it kind of works out to do it in the morning. But in Category 1, when I was competing, like, in practice, and there was just a lot more frustrations, a lot more beating head against the wall and like trying to figure stuff out and, you know, chucking shoes out your shop and stuff like that. So did you have somebody you could like lean on and like try to ask questions for and like, you know, you know, get ideas from or like, Oh, I'm struggling with this. How do I get better? Yeah. There was a couple guys that I was practicing with that were kind of at the in the same realm that I was at the time, um, that we'd bounce ideas off of a little bit, but, um, it's just hard to, I don't know. I'm kind of like a self-reliant type person more, you know, if I can somehow fix it or do it, I'm going to do it. And so like, I just would keep beating my head against the wall and looking at stuff and figuring stuff out and trying stuff and doing that. I'd, you know, make phone calls to Craig every now and again and, you know, talk to him a little bit. And, you know, he, he's got a way of making you think outside the box, you know, a little bit. So, yeah, we talked about that (laughs) not too long ago, Riley and I, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's good. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I think we could get, go back even, if I want to go back some even further of like, there's a bunch of that who says kind of like, I think who says about who you are, the person and stuff. Uh, so where do you think you got that just like hard work from? Like, was that something you were around growing up? And I, th- you are a very, you can see things. The other people aren't yeah. seeing like I like I've seen things that you've built and everything else. Like I've seen presses, power hammers, forges like you are. A, you can see something and you can get it on paper and make it into reality. So I'm <clears throat> where was that? Have you always had that like even growing up or is it something you were around? Um, yeah, I kind of I wouldn't say that I didn't I didn't see that very much. Like the closest that I saw that as a kid was my grandfather that did a lot of uh uh, woodworking. He would do a lot of like scroll saw and stuff like that and lathe work. Um, but I didn't really spend that much time with him in the workshop at all. It was always fishing with him, uh, or gardening or, you know, splitting wood, doing that kind of stuff. The work ethic type Mm -hmm. stuff, I think probably came from my parents, you know, they were always, I guess, you know, pretty driven to work and stuff. But I started working at the dairies when I was a kid, you know, about 12 years old, I'd go spend three days a week with the dairy farmer and just live there and just work. And I really enjoy that. You know, it's long hours, five o'clock in the morning till 10, 11 o'clock at night, but you get to see something that you built that day or you did that day and be productive. Um, I would say that the being able to see it and produce it, um, I really noticed come around, I would say probably high school. Like if I saw something, I could usually, you know, build it. So. And we did, did your high school have classes that were as you were like able to do that in? Yeah, so there was a shop class, there was a welding class, um, and then I took it one step further, and so I don't know if they still do it now or not, but it's called post-secondary education. So my senior yeah. year of high school, I just went straight to tech college. So all I had to do was take two prerequisites, I think a, like a human relations and a writing class, along with um, the industrial welding course that I was taking, and then I didn't even have to go to high school. So I just pieced out Perfect. when I was a junior, and went straight to college and and it was great because the dairy farmers that I was working for always have broken down conveyors and feeders and oh, stuff yeah. like that so 
they they knew that I had the equipment at my disposal, and so they'd just give me a parts list of things to make them. And I think uh, one semester, I I didn't really have a whole lot to do other than just projects for the dairy farmer. <laughs> so yeah. at, at that point, was that kind of like your outlook of like, this is what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to milk cows and weld shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for a <laughs> while there, I thought about actually like doing the dairy uh, route. Um, the reason that I didn't is I felt like you had to be way too intim- intimate with your cows because like you can pick your cows <laughs> out by their by their tits not because of the numbers <laughs> yeah. on the ears and i thought yeah. that was really messed up <laughs> so it kind of scared me off yeah so it's so a lot of, it's a lot of poop it's a yeah, lot it of poop, poop and blood oh, yeah. man <laughs> like yeah. just like copious amounts <laughs> yeah and I, apparently i didn't have enough of the dairy so like right after i think it was my senior year of high school uh when i was at going to college i i worked for a company where it was uh I don't know if I should probably say this to the public or not, but I'd, I'd pump liquid shit from the dairies. And so we would go from <laughs> one dairy to the next dairy and we would just pump liquid shit by the millions of gallons. <laughs> so, I can nothing. stand horse shit all day, but cow shit all day is fucking rank. <laughs> See, I think, I think pig shit's the worst. Like cow shit's okay, but pig shit's nasty. Both. I don't mind pig shit I'm gonna so pick, much. I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick just both. I don't want to deal with either one that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In a perfect being world, a complain be like a, a, yeah. a whiny ass team roper. Man, that's the worst <laughs> part about team roping. Is getting shit on your rope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. But so, so when, what? When I went to, oh, go ahead. Oh, keep going. I was gonna say when I went to college and I did the industrial welding um, course that's where I was going to probably shoot for was just going down that route. Um, cause I, I definitely have more of a fabricator mindset, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. kind of like you're describing. Yep. And so did you go to like, how long was college for you? Uh, just that year. It was a one year course. Um, I could have oh, nice. transferred to another college for a second year. Um, but it would have been a lot more CNC and robotics, which I really okay. didn't want to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of computer work. Yep. So how, so did, how did you that... go? Yeah, go from there to shoeing horses. So I uh, I worked in a couple different shops um, over a couple years. Um, doing Welding shops. Yeah, doing one shop was a repair shop I worked at for a while, and then one shop was a um, like a production shop, which I only worked there for four months, and that takes the life and it's soul shit. right out of a human being. Yeah, like you literally sit in a booth with a machine with a tote of parts and you put the parts together and make the same part all day, every over day. Over and over. That's oh, like when I was a did. senior in high school, I worked at a fab shop that all we did was production. And like when you go to the grocery store and those little things that hold the price tag out at the freezer, yep, man, yeah. we, I would weld like a thousand of those a day. Yeah. I'd, I'd it's weld the backs of them. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. It was just like, I thought I, like I was the same as you. I was like, I'm gonna go be a welder, and you're like, I might not want to be a welder. <laughs> like, yeah, this isn't yeah. that great. Like, in that first year, I worked at three different shops, and like the third shop, I stuck at for probably a year and a half before I went to shoeing school. And like, it was it was definitely the funnest shop, and like I could have definitely seen myself starting one of those businesses pretty quick. Um, and that was just an industrial uh, structural steel shop, and so it okay, was a pretty yeah. small one, but we would just get the blueprints for all the buildings um, that we were yep. building, and we would do all the stairs, railing, I-beams, columns, 
uh, gussets, pretty much everything in-house, and then we would ship it off, and then somebody would assemble it on site. And that's like a, like I, I I don't I don't know, but it's like that's something I could see you doing again someday. Oh yeah, easily like like yeah. That's kind of like I, I could B, see like, you with your blacksmithing and where you live. Pretty good market for that. Yep. Yeah, for yeah. sure. A lot of time, a lot of bitchy yeah. people. Yeah, but, but like, I feel like it's one of those things where this, like I said, it's kind of like Plan B. Like, I've spent the last, yeah. you know, the time that I've been shoeing, slowly acquiring, you know, machines, uh, so mm-hmm. that if the day comes where I can't bend over, I'm ready to rock and roll in that world. So. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. So, what made you go to shoeing school? Uh. I think we got our first horse when I was a kid, probably like when I was like seven or eight. Um, okay. And it, I would say it was pr- like probably kind of the push for me the most. Um, and then my parents moved where we had some acreages and then we, uh, I think we got like three horses right after that. And we had them pretty steady growing up and whatnot and did a bunch of trail riding and just kind of dinking around really. And, I started training and doing some stuff um, when I was younger. And Did just you grow up in it. Montana? Uh, no, Minnesota, central Minnesota. Okay, okay. Mm. Yep. And then uh, just kind of grew up with horses. And then when I was welding, it wasn't around horses at all. Um, wasn't, you know, I was probably living an hour from my parents' house and uh, never, didn't really bother me not to be around them. And then the more I was not around them, the more I was getting kind of grumpy and just kind of like irritable and just, I wouldn't say that I wasn't happy. It was just, didn't feel like, uh, like I felt like there was something missing maybe, I guess. Yeah. And then kind of just starting to talk to people and figured out like, you know, you can take metal and put it with horses and then, you know, you're a horseshoe. So wow. I was like, I was like, well, that sounds like something I can maybe do and not really knowing if I'd like it or not, but it was, you know, piece of cake, like just and something idea. I really enjoyed right from the get go. Yep. Oh yeah. Wow. So you really truly love being around horses like every day then? After yeah, I do. Up. And it, it it's funny, like uh I haven't owned a horse personally since like I wanna say that the last one uh he died in two thousand sixteen or seventeen. <laughs> that that the like, one in your side room. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's just kind of one of those things where like, I've, I've been so busy competing and traveling that I was like, like I'm content being around with him all day not necessarily having my own to ride. So it, you know, fills that void, but yeah, I do. I I definitely genuinely just like being around him. That's the question I always get from clients. Like, do you own horses yourself? And that's, basically what i tell them every time is like i'm around your guys's horses every day i don't have time to go take care of my own yeah you know? yeah and plus they're expensive so yeah and like <laughs> my wife has one and i know it probably bothers her that i don't have one because we ride together a lot when we had horses and stuff and it would do stuff and go up in the mountains and uh it was it we both definitely enjoyed it it's just now i'm you know gone down the motor out a little bit more and got a dirt bike and a side by side and I don't have to worry about feeding them or picking up their shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or them colicking. Yeah, exactly. 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 I don't have to worry about it dying one day. (laughs) 
just like a, by itself just like yeah, yeah. Shit, this is great <laughs> yeah exactly where where do you go to shooting school at uh here actually in bozeman at uh montana state under tom wolf okay. oh nice yep is that I'm, what led you to montana uh, a little bit like i don't know why but like all through high school and stuff like that when people would ask you what you were going to do and where you were going to live i didn't know what i was going to do but my answer always was going to be i was going to live in montana like I yeah. just was born in the wrong state. And so yeah. right after uh, welding college, um, I came out and worked on a ranch that spring for a little while in uh, Helmville, Montana. And then uh, I think I went like three or four days without seeing a single person. And at that age, <laughs> I was like, that's probably not the best way to find a wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, but, it sounds perfect. Yeah, exactly. I, like right now, I, yeah. If I could take her if with If you me, do man, find one out there, though, it might be the yeah. right one. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Process of elimination, the only one. <laughs> yeah. So I went back and lived in Minnesota for a couple couple years and then came back out here to Montana State and uh, stayed in the valley here in Gallatin Valley and rode along with, oh, probably five or six different guys over two years. So, so do you meet Melvin in Minnesota? No, like, so she's originally from Golden, Colorado. And she, uh, she came up to Bozeman. I think she spent a semester up here in college and then went back and finished college in Denver and then came back, um, and moved permanently up here. And she was actually working at a big guest ranch at Philip Morris stones or used to own, like they've sold it, I guess. And, uh, Tom Wolf had it lined up where he was the shoer at that ranch, but he would bring the the spring course to put the first set of shoes on. The I think they had like 100 or 110 horses. And uh, oh, the spring course would put the first set of shoes on, and the fall course would come in at the end of the season and pull all the shoes and trim them. And so I was in the spring course, so we were out there shoeing for like three days. Uh, I think there was like 12 or 13 of us in the class, and she was one of the gals that was working as a wrangler and that's how I met her. We didn't start dating for about a year later, but that's kind of how we met. That's awesome. Yeah. So then, so you go through shoeing school and everything you're apprenticing. And <clears throat> so what was your impression when you went to that first WCB just to watch? Like, were you already making shoes and everything or? Yeah. Like I, I got my journeyman in 2010 and, uh, I, I guess you could say that I knew enough about handmaids and like the basics and the understanding of moving material where like I could get it done, but it, there was a lot more questions than there was answers. And so yeah. there's a huge impression that was put on me. I think when I came up to the, the tent, the first time, uh, I want to say it was, I want to say the WCB team was Raleigh Desiato, Gene, Tim McPhee and Chris, I think maybe. And uh, I just remember them watching them do a demo on a horse and shoeing it and being blown away at how fast they could get stuff done and how efficient they were and how much the shoe that they built looked like the foot they were putting it on so quickly and, like, effortlessly. It really, mm-hmm. like, made a big impression on me. So Yeah, so you like think, like, things had a reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Do you think by, like, completing, like, your journeyman was, like, the next like you didn't feel like you completed like you were at a finishing point like this was the next step like now you had an understanding like okay i completed this now i have somewhere else i need to go and something better to like i don't 
I don't know how like I don't know how you could advertise it for the journeyman, but like everybody thinks once you get your journeyman that you've arrived and you can call yourself yeah, a, a exactly. journeyman, right? It is the biggest crock of shit that there is. Cause like to me, the journeyman is like, yeah, you can tie your laces on your, your shoes and you can wipe your own ass now. Great. Now you're good. Now. Okay. <laughs> like that's yeah. the way I feel like the journeyman skill level is like, it's a great achievement and it's a really good thing, but like, it's yeah. not the top of the mountain. Like you're just realizing <laughs> yeah. now that there's a mountain in front of you. It's, it's, yeah. it's a good basic, right? Yes. But yep. it, it's also crazy how complicated they make it. Yeah. Like, it's such a, a simple thing. Like it's, yep. it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy I feel complicated. Like, like I feel like you should have to get your journeyman to be able to go hang your shingle out there and be able to, you know, go shoot for the public. Like, like, yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. I am you know, like, I'm not for a lot of government, but it's like, it's going to happen probably to us sooner or later, you know, one of these days, yeah. like governments everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. the journeyman step is like, I hear heard Craig say, it's like, it's a driving test. You know, yep. it's like, and it, it is a decent driving test. Yeah. Like yeah. that, that is what it is. Just pretty much showing that you have an understanding that there's blood inside of it and you know how to take a piece of steel and wrap it to the trim that you made it to the foot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think yeah, about I, it like I, that, I, that's I pretty think. basic. It's super basic, and it's like making a bar shoe, you know, to fit a pattern can be as well as hard as you want to make it or as simple as you want to make it. But it is a good understanding that if a guy can forge weld a bar shoe, fit to a pattern with a clip, that's a that guy could probably or person can probably do quite a bit in the trick. Like you know, they're gonna, they're going to be okay. They can go out there yep. and I don't know if do no harm because. Yep. It's still hard not to do that, but yep. they're, they're going to be all right. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where I feel like, I guess, inadequacies in knowledge and skill in the farrier, I would say, do a lot of damage to horses. Like, there's a lot of horses that get stuck or trimmed short and, or out of balance in a matter where it, it, when they walk up on you and you look at them, it's borderline cruelty. Man, I, yeah. I I question it all the time in my head. Is like, what is, what is the base? What is our base here? Like, where are we? Like, and it's like the trims. I don't worry about as much. You know, the horses that are just trims, either they're gonna be sore or they're just gonna figure themselves out for the most. It seems like, uh, mm -hmm. but it's like once we start putting seal on the bottom of their feet, like we're influencing them pretty hard, and it goes that way. But it's like, I'm always thinking, and it's like I always go back to it's like nails in the white line seemed like the the basic like that's where we gotta gotta be like where is what is it for you when you like see a horse like we're like man if we could all just do this we'd be going somewhere i think i think a lot of it's the like a lot of it is the trim like there's a lot of horses that like just you don't got to take all their foot off just because it's there to take off like like i tell my apprentices all the time because there's a there's a couple barefoot trimmers in the area, which I don't have any problem with barefoot trimmers as long as they don't cripple horses. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a couple around the area though that like definitely have taken them way too short. And it's one of those things where it's like, it takes a lot more skill to maintain depth and not get distortion than it does to just take yeah. all the foot that there is there on the foot off because yeah. then there's nothing to distort. Right. But at the same time, the horse is crippled. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah so. but then he's not moving around much, putting weird loads <laughs> on the foot. Exactly, exactly. So like, they, like I've had I've had people comment and be like, well, why does your foot look longer than than the barefooter's foot? And I'm like, well, it's because the horse ain't sore. It's got something to protect the bottom of the pedal bone, you know. Yep. Yeah. But it takes more skills and to be able to maintain that depth without it distorting. It's it's hard though too, right? That it's like there's those feet that look like they are short from the bottom but they still look long from the top type deal and stuff mm -hmm. so it's like how do you kind of go about those feet and fighting to try to make the client happy like mm -hmm. a happy medium essentially yeah yeah to me is like i just tell them that they're all individuals like yeah. some horses have long pastures some horses have short pastures and you are never going to make a long pasture horse look like it has a short pasture horse's hoof capsule like yeah yeah they they go hand in hand you know, and so it's not my job to dictate what they get. Like they are what they are, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's just, I think it's hard for, hard for some clients to accept it. And yep. there's somebody out there that's going to tell them different too, right? Yes. Yep. They can yep. find and somebody yep. that it's going to agree with them. Yep. Mm -hmm. They're going to be like, yep. he is too long. I'm going to, I'm going to solve this issue. <laughs> for yeah. you. But then usually... <laughs> Then usually they come back around though because they're like, he can't walk. Can you come back? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you know. So. Oh, that's that's like our biggest thing here is we're so freaking wet. It's like if you take the horse down too much, it's like he's gonna wash out and be a little bit sore. It's not gonna yep. be a very good deal. You might want to leave a little bit to him, yep. but mm -hmm. it's hard to keep the keep him from flaring all over the place. You know, if you don't yeah. have them to get together. So yeah. like you say, it's comes down to the trim, but then you go to put a shoe on them. Like mm -hmm. where, where in the shoe, like is the hardest part you think of like getting the shoe on the horse? I think it is the fitting, you know, understanding the, the shape of the white line is going to be dictating your shape of your shoe. You know, uh, if you, if you can fit, your shoe to the shape of the white line, I mean, you can nail up that shoe with your eyes closed. It doesn't matter. Like a monkey can do it. You know, so like, then it comes down to like trying to do that though. Is like you got to understand the horn, huh? Yep. Yep. You got to understand the horn and you just got to understand like the arcs of the foot. Like I definitely have heard a couple sayings that Craig's have said to me over the years that have made massive impressions. Like one of them was like, like we were talking about like the trims, like, you don't got to take it all today. You're going to be back in six weeks. If you left it a little bit yeah. long this time, you'll know next time, you know? And when he said that, I was like, man, <laughs> what the <laughs> hell? That was so simple, dude. You know? Yeah. But it's the same thing yeah. with like the, the arcs of the foot. Like I, I think that there's three ex, uh, transitions in the foot, you know, the extensive process and the bridge, you know, they're in the bone, they're in the arcs, they're in the foot. And so, if you start to go to and from your arcs to the bridge, man, it just sorts a lot of things out. So is that what you're thinking about when you see a foot and like you're heading to the anvil is just how yep. you're going to break that shape down? Yep. Well, in, in my trim, so like when I'm trimming it and I'm running my rasp and I'm shaping the foot from the bottom and the top, I'm always trying to think of where those transitions are and not trying to move them but trying to make them flow from one to the next because it's just one arc connecting the two. And so mm -hmm. if you don't put any kinks or straight spots in it, 
it's a lot easier to just create an arc to and from them and then duplicate it at the horn. You know, that sounds simple to do, you know? Oh, my yeah. gosh. And doing yeah, it's completely yeah, you're different. Just like, yeah, just, just arc. I'm trying yeah. to, like, just picture arcs. it in my head <laughs> as you're explaining it. <laughs> but so, like, when you're, when you're working the shoe on the horn and stuff, like, you're either working to the arc or away from the arc. So when you start mm-hmm. thinking about it, like, in transitions and 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 force yourself to go out to a quarter and back in and have an extensive process in your in your shape like they just start to come around stronger and they they nail up easier and the foot is just so much more pleasant to be around so do you think that is a little bit of you are just forging evenly since you're shaping evenly on the horn Mm-hmm. That it, you're not going from one, just one direction, like so. Do you hold the shoe by the heel and forge back to the toe, and stuff like that to forge to and from? Yeah, Craig pointed that out. I can't remember when. It was a while ago. Um, I can't remember how it happened or what was going on, but like we were talking about transitions and flow of the foot, and he was saying that he noticed a lot of guys. Um, high-end guys that were like Austin would you know forge from the heel to the toe and and clean things up and so that's all I needed to hear you know what I mean like if you if you tell me that you know Austin Edens you know does a heel this way it's it's enough backing for me to like I well I gotta see it I gotta try (laughs) it I gotta you know what I mean like he's a Uh wicked handy guy so oh he's the man yeah yeah so like when I started um, playing with that, it confused me at first more than it helped me. But the more I did it, the more I understood it and what you can do with it. And then it just, cause we always work our rasp from the quarter to the toe, but everybody only ever works on the horn from the toe to the heel. Well, and it's funny cause you can like watch a guy, right? Like forging and he's struggling to get the shape and he's just keeps going mm-hmm. from the same spot just over and yep. over again. And so, like, I, I, it's, it's interesting for me to hear that you kind of struggled with it in the beginning because I thought – I would think that you would pick it up really quickly because I feel like – and maybe you didn't then, but it's like I feel like right now you or you have a super good understanding of, uh, ba- like, basic blacksmithing, working each side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 forging 180 degrees. Yeah, and that's yeah. – like, I guess that's what I it comes down to for me, like, on the horn is, like, I'm – I don't yep. belong in any group. I'm just like a wanderer. I feel like sometimes, <laughs> and so it's like my blacksmith mind kicks in, and I'm like, that's all I'm doing is just working the other side, like from yeah. from the other way. I can't work from the inside of the shoe, so this is the only way you yeah. can work that other diagonal. And like the reason I say that it was kind of frustrating and confusing in the beginning is like when you start doing that move, you don't necessarily see a result from it. And you can't figure out if it's worth doing or not doing. And or if you're wanting to make a big change, how do you go about making a big change, working it from the quarter to the toe? You know what I mean? It's like I'm going through the motions, but I'm not necessarily seeing the result yet. Exactly. And then you can't do that for very long before you quit doing that that action, right? And so Mm -hmm. the more I did it, the more I started paying attention to being able to see the result from it. And then once I did it long enough where I saw the result, it was hard. I just can't not do it now. And do you think it helped too? Of like, do you think your tongs got better? Like your tongue oh, hand yeah. got better doing that move? Because that's yep. where that move is hard. Was like took me a really long time to learn. Yep. The, to be honest, it was probably paying attention to the tongs 
and uh, manipulating the tongs to make it do what I wanted. I thought it was the hammer doing it that way, but it was de- like it's the same as the other way, you know, working from the toe mm-hmm. to the heel. It's the tongs that do all the work. So yep. I just became a lot more aware of where my tongs were and where the air gap was on the horn to allow it to be able to make the change. I That's huge, I think, of like mm-hmm. – a lot of foraging is paying attention where the air gap in is what it's where, where, where you actually are in contact with the horn is like, that's yep. where it comes. Like you watch guys make tongs and like, that's usually when they fuck up making the offset on a pair of tongs, putting the S bend in as they don't have an S uh, air gap on the other side mm-hmm. as they're, as they're foraging. Yeah. You can't expect it to go somewhere when it's got nowhere to go. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, again, that sounds really simple. <laughs> No, but it, but it is kind of just that, I guess it, it is that simple when it, when it comes mm-hmm. down to it. <laughs> like, so that's where I would yes. say like blacksmiths are better at, at understanding things and doing things like that than fairies are because blacksmiths are pretty, pretty much like, I right, do this, do this, do this. And it produces this and they just do it. They don't have to have some in-depth conversation yes. about it. You know what I mean? No. I, I think you're right. So like a horseshoer has a hard time having a move. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, so it's, it's, that's super funny to me that you, you said that. So it's like, I was thinking of just the other day and of like <clears throat> my, I'm going to do a demo with the winter clinic and my demo is going to be on steel moving to and from the hammer. Like that, that's what I, I, I want to do. Yeah. And it's funny because horseshoers will ha- not pay attention to just a concept or a move of one shoe they'll learn it they'll learn how to do it and then you'll go to another shoe and they're like well i don't know how to make that shoe it's like well you've done all yeah. of these elements before you just have to put them together <laughs> like you just have to like grab them from each one of so I, I think you're right it's like blacksmiths will like well that's just kind of a leaf you just didn't do this part that's just kind of this and like they'll they can break yeah. it down into a part system and so is is that how you look at new shoes when you get like a shoe that you've never made before? Oh yeah, definitely. Like there, you just look at what the elements are. Like a um, a good example uh, is the uh, the cock and the cock and feather that we had to make for the specialty forging. It didn't get picked this year, um, but it's a trailered caulking with a ramped yep. up wedge. Um, I've made ramped up wedges and trailered caulkins before and stuff like that, but never that exact shoe. So I just took the pieces mm-hmm. that I know how to make and what I have to do with them and just put them together. And it, the first one, you know, might not come to size or be a little rough looking, but it comes together within a shoe or two, you know, pretty quick. I think that's where a lot of people too are like afraid to make that first move where you, like you just said, you're like, you just got to make that first one to have a mark. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, he's shooting a gun for the first time. You got to at least pit one down range to see, where you're, where you're hitting at, you know, just try to, yeah. and then adjust from there. Yeah. But, yeah, no, and nobody's going to laugh at you if you don't hit the paper plate on the mark, you know. But no. for whatever reason, in the shoeing world, everybody thinks that somebody's going to get, you know, made fun of for making a shitter. Like, yeah. anybody that's good at you making shoes has made a pile of shitters. Well, yeah. and like, here's a big news flash for everybody don't fucking post the first one. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't they even ask the question. Yep. Maybe like if you want to send it to somebody, send it to one buddy or something like that. A message, yep. but don't don't post it for everybody. No. Make four or five more. Just like yeah. <laughs> just keep keep going, like because yeah. it is. It's gonna be like. So do you still have that happen to you now? Where you try a first shoe and you're like, I'm gonna hide that one. That, oh, that no, one's I'm, not that great. Yeah, like like. The sh- some of the shoes that I made practicing for convention, I mean, they're shitters. Like, they're twisted up, mangled up pieces of shit that I just was either trying something or figuring out measurements on. And, like, I, who cares? Like, I don't give a shit. Like, I remember. I, I learned something from it. I remember when I came to your shop a couple of years ago, and on your water bucket there, you had a bunch of shoes laying there, like mm-hmm. practice shoes that you'd made. And I picked one up, and I was like, oh, that's fairly decent you're like it's like the first one i ever made and it was like nicer than the shoes that i had been making (laughs) to this point where there's like 10 of them i'd made (laughs) so it's not really that big of like shitter mangled up you know but (laughs) i mean one man's shitter might not be another man's shitter but (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. well so now you're you guys have got a pretty good damn team together at this point how excited are you about that I'm really excited. Uh, it'll be good. It's it's kind of been in the works a little bit. Um, you know, obviously we all had to do the team trials and stuff. And, you know, me, me, Bodie, and Money definitely wanted to, to pair up and kind of stack it, I guess you could say. Um, we weren't sure who was going to make the fourth one. We had a pretty good idea. It was either going to be Daniel Sawyer or Brian or Adam, you know, through yeah. the process. So all those guys are, are handy in their own right. And they're all good, super good dudes. And so, Oh yeah. It didn't, you know, it's kind of one of those spots where, um, Daniel was able to, to get there and I'm glad he did. Cause I mean, me and him have been joking about doing a team together for a long time. And so it's, it's awesome that it's finally come together and it's, uh, a team that I feel like probably has a lot of pressure on it in the sense of to do good, but at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, like, like we just had a practice last weekend and I mean, there's pressure to do good, but like, I don't, I don't feel like there's pressure to do good any more than there's pressure to do good that I put on myself. You know, that's what I was just going to say. I don't think there's any more outside pressure than there is inside pressure of like all you guys are, are all very self accountable. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm and self-motivating like that it's yeah i i i I, and i i wouldn't say like i guess i was off to say like oh yeah there's pressure on you guys i would say like for like especially i can speak for myself is like there's hope for you guys yeah like yeah this is like man this is this is pretty cool like this is because you guys have had good teams together before you know it's like Mm -hmm. you money robert and lamar were all on a team and like you guys were a pretty good flowing team yeah. Yeah. The, the cool part about that team was I would, I would, I would honestly say that probably all four of us learned more those two years than any other point in our forging careers because of the grind that we did in those two years and the type of practices that we produced, like it, it was nothing about, or it was only about getting better. There was no ego, there was no, mm-hmm. there was no issues ever. It was always 
push harder, dig deeper, do better, you know? So that's super hard. And that's like, that's everybody says that's what they want to do until they, they show up at a practice and someone time tells to them. do it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, is so I, I like, you're just that type of person though. Anyways, like even yourself by your, like, I imagine you're doing that when you're riding your snowmobile that you're kind of pushing yourself nonstop. Like that's Oh, just, massively. Yeah. Yeah. Easy, like, easy to, easy to do in a practice setting. Yeah. And when, when I started shoeing, I was, I was taking horses on the side and training them, breaking colts and doing some stuff. And I even noticed myself doing that with them a lot. Cause like, <laughs> I always, I would always, I would always look at them and what they could teach me, you know, what can this sorrel teach me? And then what could this paint horse teach me? And as long as I learned something from them, when I had them in my custody, I felt like it was a mutual beneficial deal. They got taught something and I got taught something. And it's the same thing with yeah. the, the competing and the blacksmithing. Like we compete cause we want to win, but I'm also just on a constant seeking journey to get more knowledge and become better at shoeing horses to be more efficient to do a better job by the horse for the client you know so so what goals are you seeing for yourself right now then that you want that you're working on in the competition world um i want to i want to continue kind of doing what I was doing before COVID, I guess, to be honest, like COVID was a weird scenario for the world, but at the same time, it, it kind of hit my world in like the perfect timing. I was planning on taking yeah. a step away from competing a little bit. I went hard, you know, from 2012 to 2019. Um, and I remember you telling me that, like, we're going to take time and I'm going to spend time with my wife, Yep. you know, yep. take a year and just do her things. Yep. And, and we did, and it was weird because like our world really didn't change that much. Like I still went and shot horses. I just saw less people, which was great. And yeah, my wife works remote. And so her job, nothing changed. Everything was steady. So like our world pretty much didn't have any ripple in it. And then the best part about it was, is, you know, everything got quiet. There was no clinics, there was yeah. no contests, there was no things to do. So I had some stuff that was on the books to have to go do judging and clinic wise that got canceled. And so I went from the longest period of time where I was home, I think it was like six weekends in a row or five weekends in a row for years <laughs> to, I think I stayed home for like a year and a couple months straight. <laughs> because so, of COVID and you be, couldn't go nowhere. Yeah. Well, because there was nothing that was calling me to go do, you know? Yeah. So I just went so up. So what did mountains. you guys what did you guys do to like fill that time then? Yeah. So like we spent a bunch of time, we like ironically right in the beginning of COVID bought a Can-Am side by side and a, uh -huh. a camper. And you know, we just went up and explored old gold mines and ghost towns and silver mines, you know, it was yeah. cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> Something must be uh harassing Riley out there yeah. in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go pee. Sorry, guys. I've been drinking my coffee. <laughs> we thought someone was banging on the trailer door out there or something. No, it's all quiet here tonight. Not too much. So, did you guys, uh, so when you and your wife were out there, it's, it's something that's interested me. It's like, I want to go, like, uh, see some old mines and stuff. Did you guys, like, find a bunch of those and, like, get to so walk many. back in them? Oh, yeah. So really? many, dudes. So, like, 
there was one that we found that was really cool that was really big and it had um it had three entrances to it and we went to one the first time and i went back probably about a mile mile and a half straight back in the shaft oh, and shit. uh where was this at just here in montana about probably oh, okay. an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes from the house and uh went back there and explored a little bit and then came out and then a different time we found a shaft that went in from the bottom and it had like a 300 foot wooden ladder that connected to that shaft that we were in before and so did you guys go up it oh hell yeah (laughs) oh so it was still intact and well safe enough i guess close enough yeah (laughs) but just that kind of stuff is fun like that old industrial um equipment and era you know, all that stuff was in the oh, late yeah. 1800s, early 1900s. Um, yeah. There was a there was a lot of silver mines in Montana in the late 1800s before the silver industry kind of, you know, fell through the floor, you know? Yeah. So, but just something different, something non-horse related. So you guys just got to go be together and, you know, yep. take off from the world, essentially, you know, through yep. COVID. And it almost was perfect timing for you in that sense. Yep. Yep. And then... Obviously, the biggest scare I had was, you know, coming back in the arena, you know, did I get, you know, rusty, stupid, yeah, you know, forget a bunch of stuff, suffer, you know, yeah. but it, it doesn't appear to be that way too much. Yeah, I well, think everybody kind of worries that about that if they take like a little bit of time off, like, how bad am I going to be? You know, am yep. I going to still be all right? Yep. You know, almost like a form of not necessarily retirement, but like you hear these like professional athletes or whatever take some time off. And then like, that's their biggest fear is like why they come back. It's like, Oh, am I going to be as good or not? Yeah. Did the game change? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it like, it wasn't too long for you, but it's like, so at this point, like you're probably just wanting to hone things up. It seems like then on your own. Oh yeah. For yourself and on this team of like what you guys are working on is pretty much just like, like we're yep. working on big things, you know, but it's like for you guys yep. though, it's probably pretty. So like you guys had your first practice this last weekend. How did that go? It went good. went smooth. Um, like obviously three of our corners we've been doing for the last year, you know, me, money and Bodie have been on the same corners and doing the exact same thing. And Daniel is experienced and savvy and he'd been on the left front before. So it just made sense to put him on the left front. And mm-hmm. he was in a spot where he wanted to um, maybe lead off. And so we tried that and we just kept him there. And so the beauty with this team of having so much experience, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel or anything. We know the system and we know what system works. And now we just yep. got to implement it. So, so like this weekend, you guys just did pretty much the same go each time then. Like you didn't have any big changes to it. Yep, yep. So yep. the same discipline, like, you no. did the same discipline all weekend? Discipline or? stayed the same, but, like, Daniel lead, let off. I trimmed second, and then Money, and then Bodie, and Bodie's anchor. So, like, at any given time, somebody can jump somebody if, you know, shit hits the fan. But the the idea is, is to know the choreograph so well that you know the end result halfway through the go. You know, you know, if you're going to be tight on time, if you're not tight on time and if you're not tight on time, where to be able to put some of that time to make the product better. That first run, do you, are you guys running the clock to like see where it's at or you just kind of leisurely just going through it or 
you have a set time like we need to get done at the is a two hour two and a half hour mark like yeah. we have to be done or you just kind of have it in the back of your mind and just kind of seeing where you're at no like so the way i saw it was that we're all experienced enough there's no time to waste on yeah, just doing a wasted. horse like right so the first go that we did so like i think the first go we did was a roadster horse yeah it was it was a roadster horse and we did it in two hours so like whenever we do a practice go we always cut a half hour off for the judging mm-hmm. so like for the team competitions that craig put on last year the pennsylvania north carolina one all the practice goes we would do in an hour and a half you know because they're two oh, hour shit. goes you know so like because yeah. then at that point the judge is not going to take full half hour to do their work You're, you hope they don't you're getting extra time so essentially yeah. it's a grace period for yourself exactly. then. so if you can do it in less time on the day you'll be you know adrenaline up a little bit you'll get even more time so speaking in like in the past of like so you guys have the team minuscule of so like your guys's practices <clears throat> did your guys's goes at the competition were they always like your practices or does shit still happen no shit still happened um you know brian made the wrong side drafts you in north carolina <laughs> But <laughs> the fact that we practice that go in a short period of time and stuff. You were able it to was, accommodate. Exactly. It was a really good thing because, like, he made a whole second. So he didn't realize that he made the wrong side shoe until he went to fit. And he'd already oh, rasped out the oh. front half of the shoe. Oh, and so God damn. he goes to fit and he's like, why isn't my hot fitters on the inside? And so <laughs> then he realized it, right? But it was amazing because it was so early in the class still. He made another shoe, knocked it out, and it was a good quality shoe and still had time to fit it and put it on there. And there was still time on the clock to be able to do a good finish job. And so we might not have won that day, but we didn't get, you know, fourth or fifth. We only got second. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's crucial. So Yeah, especially for trying to get the overall of the weekend. Yeah. So like, and, and the big part with that too, is it just, it, it shines on the, the system that we do for our practicing is like, if something does hit the fan on the day, we have it built in to be able to still finish the class strong. And that's the whole game plan. Cause it's, you never have that perfect go where there's no problems. No, 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 something can always happen. Yeah. The whole entire thing. That's that's what I was wondering. It's like, you guys have these, I'm sure your practices are just so smooth and nice. And then, like, it, or is it sometimes the practices aren't as smooth and nice? I don't know. Sometimes the practices are rough. Like, this weekend, like, there was probably only one one or two horses out of the five we did that there wasn't multiple people that were like, I need to take two stretch sheets. Right? Really? Oh. It's, yeah, and it's not like that's, like, a massive big deal, but it no. takes time, right? Like, you didn't go to the yeah. foot, and you're the right size right from the get-go. The beauty with mm-hmm. having skills and experiences is like whatever is wrong with the shoe when you go to the foot, you know what to do to make it what you want it to be, you know? So do you think that comes from, because I'm sure each guy knows his measurements. It wasn't like it was a big shocker there. So mm-hmm. this is it like, for me, this is like, and I'm not even close to your experiences. It's like when I work with a striker, my teammate for the first time, I'm like shy to have him get after my steel real like a whole bunch. Do you think that's kind of where it comes from? It's just like it trying to been feel a, each other out. Yeah, it could have been a little bit. I don't. I think honestly, it was we're shooting for the perfect size, right? Yeah, so when I say yeah. we need to stretch a little bit, 
it's not that it didn't cover. It's not that it's, it's just not that perfect fit. So like our goal, um, whenever we, whenever we give the judge something to look at, we don't want them to, to say anything or put their finger on anything because that's giving them a reason to knock points off you. Right. But if mm-hmm. everything's down the middle where they can't say it's too short fit, too long fit, too wide fit, too tight fit, and they just like it's almost it. like a snowball effect. Exactly. So like as soon as the as soon as you see the judge start to put their finger on something, say your trim, and you see him touch your frog, yeah. Well, there's there goes points like, every time boom, they touch boom, it. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> and for whatever reason, like something that you did they didn't like. Um, but if you if you just always play that middle ground where it's not, like I said, not too long, but not too short, mm-hmm. then it slides through and you just gain all those points. And that comes from experiences of knowing where the middle ground is, though. Huh? Exactly. Exactly. And, so, that's, like, and it's, it's be, hard to learn. So when you're going to trim a foot, like uh, let's say there's not anything weird with this foot. It's just a, you're at a contest. How do you go about it? What do you want your frog to look like, your bars to look like? Like what's in your mind to me? I want everything to be, um, to look intentional, to not look overdone. And I want it to look like it's been set up for the next step. So when I trim a foot, I want that trimmed foot to look like it's set up that there's a shoe coming into it the next phase. And so then it it shows intent that the foot is getting shot. It shows intent that I didn't take too much foot. I still left some foot to burn, but yet I didn't, I didn't trim my foot and leave sole pressure where I have to touch it after I burn. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I want, no, that it, it makes a lot of sense. I want so everything you, to kind of look nice and soft, but look intentional. Yeah. And you want to have that nice eighth of an inch or so rim, I guess, or three sixteenths rim of burn material. Yep. But it's like, so how do you know where you want your bars to end? How do you know? When so a lot trimming of, your frogs too much, like, yeah, or, like, or not enough, like a lot of that kind of stuff too, is like, I feel like there's a few key questions that you can ask your judge if you're able to talk to your judge or if the judge can look at your foot. Right. And, yep. and one of those is just to ask, a, like, you don't want to be like, well, do you want me to trim it or not trim it? Do you want me to touch it or not touch it? Cause that's so vague, yeah. right? Just oh, find yeah. out whether or not he likes a trimmed up frog or he doesn't like a trimmed up frog. You don't have to be so point point blank where you're like, well, do I touch this or t- not touch this? Right. And so getting it where you touch things where it makes it look like your knife didn't touch it. You know what I mean? So that it, yeah. it looks intentional, but not like scalped or, or gouged or cupped or a bunch of lines through it. And so even if it's not where they like it to be, it's done so well that they can't argue with it that much. Okay. You right. know? Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, I've always thought it's like, man, like a really nice foot almost looks like it was sandblasted. Exactly. Like, like right now, <laughs> actually, to be honest, like the, the soles right now in the snow, they they're washed out from the snow. Yeah. But yeah. they're not overwashed out and they're beautiful. Like you don't like you do a disservice to them by touching them. You know? yeah. And I mean, so do you keep like, that right, in yeah. mind when you're like, you, when you see a foot like that, you're like, I'm going to try to aim for this a little bit with my trims. Exactly. Of this, this pretty foot, you know, exactly. This so like when, when a frog, foot. yeah. Like when a frog exfoliates on its own in the spring of the fall, 
when it exfoliates and you didn't touch it and it looks like a sensitive frog, that's what you should shoot for every time you touch a frog with your knife, in my opinion. No, and that's why I wanted to get your opinion on it because you've gone to a lot of places and done well because I think, like, you know how to shoot for the middle of the road. Like, you could mm-hmm. probably not talk to the judge, and you're probably pretty confident in what you're going to do there. Where, like, I go to a contest, and I'm like, I need to talk to somebody. <laughs> like, I, I need some help here. <laughs> like, what do yeah. I – I'm the dude asking that vague question. It's like, yeah. want me to trim that or not? Like, you got to tell me. Leave it in my pocket or don't leave it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's, I don't know. Like I feel like a, a well-shod foot on a horse is a well-shod foot anywhere on the world. And a poorly shod one is a poor shod one anywhere on the world. Yeah. You know, no, I, I would, I would agree with that. And it's like you, the, each person kind of knows it. I think while they're in the middle of the contest, they're like, yeah, well, yeah. this isn't that great. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you, you get surprised sometimes where you think you may have overdone it and then you get a good trim score. You know, the, the, the opinion's not the same of your job as you thought it was, you know, or yeah. vice versa. Sometimes you thought you just knocked it out of the park and then you get, you know, knocked down a peg or two. Yeah. Because we're, so, we're so caught up in the middle of it, mm-hmm. I would think. And so it's like, have you noticed that about yourself? Like you are way more, and I'm sure, I think it could relate to anything of like hunting, you know, buck fever type deal. I was like, mm-hmm. when you were a cat one it's a little bit of you black out in the middle of your go, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Compared to now, do you yeah. feel fully aware? Yeah. I mean, I felt pretty aware in cat one, like stuff would, stuff would happen in cat one where I, at the end of the go, I'd be like, why did I not do this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. just the time management maybe a little bit better. And then also just understanding how to be able to make the go happen in the way that you want it to go. Like, make it your go. Don't let the go run you. You run the go. And that goes with the striker, too. That's – what do you mean by that? Like, make so him like, – like, like controlling like him? Category or? one – well, not controlling him, but just communicating. So, like, category one's oh, a yeah. novice, like, usually don't have the, the, the confidence to be able to tell their striker, no, that's a shit heat. Put that back in the fire <laughs> yeah. and give me, give me a better heat. Give me a heat that's in the center of my toe, not lopsided. Because you give me yeah. a lopsided – heat at that skill level and my toe bend is going to be lopsided and but then how do you like correct that with yourself so so now you're like having to stick it back in the fire and it's taking yep. more time so then it might like screw with your head too so it's like now you're getting the double-sided thing like yeah. oh shit i just told him it's not right but now it's taking yep. more time do i go dink with my shoe that i'm working on now or do i just well, sit here so and like, wait like for like that example, like you're going to put it back in the fire for 20 seconds, maybe and center up your yeah. heat. 20 yeah. seconds on the front end is way better than a whole extra heat at the end when you got to fix your toe bend because your whole shoe's yeah, wonky. True. You know what I mean? So like you got to, you're going to fight it every heat. Exactly. And so you got to have mm-hmm. that, you got to have that conversation with yourself in your own head and be like, no, this is the right thing to do. Cause it's going to yeah. save and So do time. you still do that when you're practicing by yourself? Like uh, that was hard for me. So it's like, that's mm-hmm. one thing I've been working on with like this team that I'm on right now. It's like being a better teammate and a better mm-hmm. communicator and more mm-hmm. aware of what's going like, and like having better systems. Yeah. And so I can be a better teammate. Like, yep. is that something you work on then at the team? Like what you're going to tell your striker? Yeah. And like, to me, it's like the biggest thing is, is knowing what you're expecting from the striker. Like, when I have a striker step in, 
I want them to do a specific task. And if they don't perform that specific task, I'll stop them in the middle of it and be like, dude, okay, this is what you need to be doing right now. And this is what you are doing. So you yeah. need to yeah. stop doing that and you need to do this, or I'm just going to do it myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's super hard because mm-hmm. it's like, that's one reason that keeps me from getting an employee most of the time. <laughs> it's like, I don't think, I don't think I'm there of like being able to communicate somebody. I know yeah. I just end up doing it by myself and paying this guy yeah. to watch me do it. The, and so the, be- it is super the beauty hard. of having the striker is the fact that it saves some of the effort in your body and the sharper you are in your energy, the sharper your eyes are going to be. And so the more you can have the striker do, it benefits you to be able to be more um, consistent throughout the whole time go. Yeah, and cognitive. And so I think using the striker is definitely important, but definitely telling them what you're expecting them to do is, is crucial too, you know? And so I think also something that's really hard as a cat one that you could talk on that I'm sure you have a great understanding of is understanding the difference of what's going to happen to the forging coming from when you do it compared to when they do it. As in like the, the competitor versus the striker? No, as in like pushing and pulling. You oh, know, they call the material so like, moves. Yes, yes. And tools. Yeah, so like to me, like the the, the word like – like your talk is going to be at the winter clinic, you know, steel coming to the hammer. Um, it, it's to me, the more material that you forge on and, and move on an anvil, the better understanding you get to where it goes. The more rectangled the section is, the more you flatten it, the more it stays rectangled. The more square the section is, the more you flatten it, the more it stays square, but it just gets longer. You know, just simple, simple examples like that, right? And so yeah. same thing with bumping. Depending on how you bump is going to de- determine where the material goes. You know, so like if, you're, if, you're, if your swing is pushing or pulling, it's going to push it to the far side or pull it towards the near side. And so little things like that, the more you understand and just watch the material move through the process, the better you get a, a grasp of it. You know, because it, mm-hmm. it's in every yeah. aspect. And it, it changes like, so it's like, I like, it's going to change depending on how heavy of a hammer hits it. Yep. You know, like you talking about like, if it's already square and you flatten it, it's going to stay square and get longer. Well, it might not, it's going to be different than if it's flattened with a two pound hammer compared to a <clears> 10 pound <throat> hammer. Exactly. A two pound hammer is going to flash it yep. more than a 10 pound hammer is going to flash it. And so it's like. At this point in your in your shoemaking, it it's a ton of blacksmithing then, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like I feel like all horseshoers would benefit from spending a lot of time on a press and a power hammer because oh my gosh, you're not having to exert energy and you can just observe, and you get to watch something else move the material for you, and it, the learning curve on those machines is phenomenal and. Just going from those two machines, they move material completely different, and you wouldn't think that's why would, I get excited when I get to go to Riley's. Yeah, so I get to try it and out a little so. bit. <laughs> yeah, rightfully so. It it, it 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 things are so yeah, man. No, like going to power hammers and presses changed my whole entire thought process on mm-hmm. shoemaking. Yep, 
completely. And it yep. is. And like, just like with that of like, I know if I'm bumping, I can, I'm going to get more bump into the center of that steel. If I use a heavier hammer than a lighter hammer, just on physics. And that's just how steel moves and how stuff yep. is carried throughout the steel. And yep. like of knowing that a lighter hammer is going to flash more than a heavier hammer. Yeah. I, I, I do think, cause you don't get that. We don't hit hard enough to mm-hmm. watch steel move. Yeah, by ourselves compared to not, a press or a power hammer. Not enough to see it noticeably per blow. No, we're like, man, like <clears throat> at least my my power hammer, I can feel it change in the tongs. You know. Oh like yeah, it, it's pretty big. It's a lot at one time. Like it's uh, felt that yeah. a couple times, and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Why are my oh, tongs getting get jerked out of your hand? <laughs> yeah. Gavin went to go drive the eye drift for the first time in a hammer, and it just went all the way, just oh, like all, the, the whole whole bullet right through the hammer. Yeah. It's like, like, yeah, it's got a little more ass there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you notice quick, that? Though. Do you notice that you? Uh, you pick which machine you use depending on what you're wanting the material to do, whether you use a press or a power hammer. Oh yeah. Yeah, completely. Like that's the uh, characteristics of what they do. You use it to the, to your advantage. Yep. Yeah. A power hammer, a power hammer is sticky in a, or not a power, a press is sticky. Like you can Mm -hmm. do moves on a press that you can't do on the power hammer. And of like a press is an impression machine it is good Mm -hmm. at impressing things in it is not a drawing machine where a power hammer is a drawing machine because it hits so hard and fast like and it's fast and it's not sucking it's not staying in contact for a long time yep but no i i it's and it's just of like what you're comfortable with right yep there's a lot of guys that punch eyes on their power hammers and it probably would be smart for me to do that sometimes i'm a chicken I, I, I'm used to the press. Yeah. And so it's like, I, I'm sure if I got a new press too, I would probably, I would suck at punching eyes for a little bit on the new press. Cause my press is so crooked at this point. <coughs> I probably shouldn't say that in case I want to sell you it. Just, one day. You <laughs> just <laughs> adapted to it though. Oh yeah. 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 It's everybody that comes over. I'm like, well, when you think that center, just move it over a little bit. Cause yeah. it's going to pull that way. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a little off. Yeah, definitely. It was like you've gotten into a quite a bit of that. It's like you've made presses, power hammers, and quite a bit of stuff. Do you still have – I know you sold your press, right? Yeah, so like <clears throat> at the moment I don't have a press. Um, I sold the power hammer. Well, I sold the press because I was going to build another one. Um, I wanted to do an electronics over hydraulics to have more control and to set limit yep. switches. Um, and I bought a new – a new to me power hammer last summer or two summers ago, I should say it's a say max 60 kilogram. Yep. And, uh, it was just a couple hours away from the house, like brand new had like 30 hours. Yeah, on good it only. Hammers. yeah. So like I jumped on it and that's kind of why I sold the, the, the hammer that I had built after selling it. They both have their places though. Like I could have definitely kept that hammer because that hammer was super quiet when I wasn't using it. Because it didn't idle, right? It was a it was a uh, Kenyan style utility. And hammer. you could change. You could could you change the beats per minute on the air ham on the one you made? Yeah, I could slow them down or speed it up. Yep, yep. So you could either so like there was a valve on the back side of the manifold that you could taper down the exhaust, so yeah. it couldn't cycle the air super fast, so it would slow yep. your beats per minute down. 
So you could get mm. more control if you wanted to do like a top tool and just have it smack every two or three seconds, you know? Um, but the it thing that I noticed making pans, yes, you could speed exactly. it up a bunch. It'd be like a yep. little plenishing hammer. Exactly. But so like the cool. biggest thing to me was like, like, like your hammer, when you turn it on and let it warm up, you just got to get used to it just sitting there idling and just running. It's a goddamn freight Dude. train sitting there yeah, every, <laughs> the whole time. When we go to shut it off, I'm like, oh, thank God. Now I can think because it's like constantly just going yeah. like white noise in the back of your head, yep. just like loud. And well, and I'm like, like oh, I'm sure, God, I'm sure. Think with, again. With you, Riley, like when you first started using it, you're like, well, it's running. I better be using it. Oh, my gosh. So, so you like, gave you get me anxiety. Like, yeah, same with me. And so, like, yeah. I'm like, well, I got to turn it off when I'm not using it in between heats. And I'm like, well, that's stupid. Like, now it's not going when I need it. So you just get used yeah. to it running. But that utility hammer that I had made, it was awesome because, like, unless your foot was pressed on the pedal, it didn't do anything. But it was ready at the second that you did it. They are. I, I didn't really know that about them. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of knew they could be on and not make a noise. But it's like, yeah. I when we were at... Uh, well shot i went walking up to the to the blue to the big blue yep. they got there and i'm like looking around kind of fucking with it and i like touched the treadle and it just it fired oh, off because it was, it was on. yeah <laughs> it just, wham i was like oh shit like, i'm the one guy probably everybody yeah. thought like oh he won't get hurt by that thing yeah. like i almost lost my damn finger yeah. <laughs> had one loaded in the chamber did they <laughs> oh yeah i think it was ready to go that's at least the nice thing about a, like a, a regular hammer a self-contained they're like yeah. That thing's on. Like yeah, you might you not know. want to be near. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, definitely. Do you have problems with your with your Samex starting in the cold? No, no. It it's it's super good. Like it runs, it runs well. It, like I just used Money's last week, and he's got a fifty kilogram, and uh, they're just good hammers. They have super control and sensitivity, and yep. Like my shop isn't like super cold. Like. It's insulated and has a heater in it. The heater doesn't run all the time, but oh, like okay. the coldest that gets in there is 35, 40 degrees. You know, that's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. So it's not too that's bad. That's mine. The other day, it took me an hour to get mine started. Really? Because it was just so cold. Yeah. And I, I still got like a little residual summertime oil in it. Oh, sure. And so it's still a little thick. And so, like, yep. I have to pull every orifice on the damn thing so it has no compression pretty much. Just to get it to spin over. Get it rolling and then start adding compression back to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah when I was there, plugging holes. when I was there like a month or so ago, and it was like 18 degrees out in the morning, and uh, like it fires up, it fires up like a Cummins diesel where it's like slow at first and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and all yeah. of a sudden, like, as it starts warming up, it gets faster and faster and faster. And I was like, you just need to add a train whistle to this thing and like, exactly, like, chicka, 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 <laughs> woo, woo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds just like that. So, you guys got this team going right now. Is that pretty much your biggest thing you got going then right now? Is taking yeah, this team, going to this team all the way to Stonely? Yeah, this this is a massive priority in my life um, this year, and like I said, it's been something that's been in the works for a little while. Like, uh, I talked to my wife probably about a year and a half ago and told her that I wanted to maybe do another team and maybe jump on the AFT with specific people. And if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, it didn't. But I was hoping that it would, and it did. And yeah. I am 100% on board to do whatever I need to do as much as I need to do to make it so that it's a winning team. 
you know. That's how do you think you're going to do it just for this year and then kind of be what what's your plans for the future? We'll kind of play it by year, I think. Um yeah. You so know, maybe if, if you don't accomplish what you do, then next year you're going to be like, "Well, we got to get redemption." Yes, yes. If and that's like, a scenario then. And a lot of it, I mean, when you're on a team scenario, it's not just your your goal or plan on what's going on like if if Bodie and Money and Daniel came up to me tomorrow and were like, we're going to do this for another year. I'd immediately say yes. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it if they didn't do it next year. Uh, it's just, you know, kind of early in the year. But if if we make it the team that we want and make it do what we want it to do, then, you know, hopefully we could maybe do that two years in a row or something. Yeah. No, yeah, because it's it's kind of one of those things like the first year, like there everybody will, you know, you don't want anybody thinking it was a fluke. Yeah, exactly. That was like, to be honest, that was my biggest fear with one of my first national titles. Is that was the easy part, and I got to do it again. That's exactly what money said. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, it's yep. a, it's a, and that's exactly what Bodie like. Yep. Has told me the same exact thing. So it's yep. it's pretty cool to see you guys all together and pushing together. And something of like selfishly that I wanted to ask you about is like, how much are you still finding out about tools and tooling that you're using and when you're making horseshoes and stuff? And how much are you still changing those things? And what are some things that you've like recently discovered that you were like, man, this, I was overlooking Um, this or like something like that. Yeah. Like I would say probably over the last year or two, like one of the things that I noticed which I guess wouldn't say is new, um, but it, it has some some validity behind it. Is the fullers like the longer the fuller, the more life in the fuller, the more skill it takes to run it the way you want to run it. The shorter the fuller, the more you can just beat that thing into the shoe, and it goes perfect every time. But then it doesn't have very much life. So the fuller that you really like to use dies sooner than not. So there's kind of a give and take with that fuller, right? Like you see some fullers that people are making, they're really long, but they have more life. And then you see other fullers that are really short, compact little units and they drive sweet right from the get go, but they ain't going to drive sweet for very long because they're going to get wore up. And even those long ones, they aren't sweet until you find their sweet spot and they're, they're, they're almost ground down. Yep. You got to find the, that's something I noticed about, (laughs) That's interesting. So it's like, I noticed that about Brian Brazil's tooling mm-hmm. for making hammers. Everything is very short and compact. Yep. It looks like it's almost more, it's very close to the handle. Yep. So do you think that's mostly just in top tools? Because like in hammers, I've noticed difference. I like reach in the hammers. Yeah, I would agree. I like reach in the hammer. Like, um, like I use the gym pour. I guess the long nose Jim Poor, like the, the mm-hmm. it's kind of like a classic looking one, but it's it's like five yeah, inches or yeah. more from face to face. Yeah, um, inch and five eighths around yep. faces, yep. I think. Like, like I really, I really truly like those those hammers, uh, the feel of them, and like I remember being on the team with Andrew Wells, and he's got really good eye and finding really cool, unique tools and and from tool makers, and we had a conversation. And I was like, man, those, all those hammers, all the tools that he has are sweet. The thing that I don't like is the fact that when I break them, 
I can't replace them. So yeah. when I pick up a tool <laughs> that I'm going to be using for competing on and just beating the hell out of, when I break it, you want it. I want to just make a phone call and make that thing feel right at home, right back in my hand again. I was going to say, that's the thing. It, I, yep. Like it's a coming of like, I make handmade things and it's like, if you break one of mine, I'll remake it for you. Yeah, but, it but it's not. Might not it's not identical. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. it's like, dude. Like, I'll, even like, I'll rehandle one of my hammers, and I'm like, oh, it's not yeah. the same. Not <laughs> the same. It's yeah. not there. Yeah. It's like, man, yeah. I don't like you as much yeah. anymore. <laughs> and like, like I said, I use those Jim Four hammers, <clears throat> and I love them, and they're great. But I've broke three of the two pounders. I've snapped the flat. I was the just flat about side to ask face. how many of you broke. <clears throat> I've snapped three of the flat faces right clean off. You're, it's gonna yeah. happen it's gonna happen yeah. and like you're saying yep. it's like it's and that's coming like it's you understand that a lot of people some people a they're not gonna hit, work a hammer as hard as you can to get it that fragile sure. to where that the thing's been work hard and it's gonna break yep. but it's like when you swing a hammer that hard and that often mm-hmm. something's gonna happen to it sooner or later yeah yeah it's not necessarily the tool's fault like it's just a no, matter but, of like that's just what's going to happen eventually. Yep. yep. And same with tongs. Like they're yep. eventually going to snap somewhere. Or something's going to happen. And it's, it's an understanding that all tools have a life. Like all tools have a life. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but Even so like you have a pretty good understanding though of what you like and what to make it feel comfortable. Yep. Yep. And so like, do you, do you have to alter the hammers at all when you get them? Like the faces, is there a certain thing you look for in a hammer face that you kind of like, or um, have you just got I used to that gym for how drive it, it and use it? Yeah. I've got like the gym for one I just grab and use like yeah. even the handles, they're a little bit scant for me. So I usually wrap them, um, with like an air cushion type wrap. It's not super mm-hmm. tacky, but it takes a lot of the vibration out of my elbow. And so it just feels good. And like when you get a missed blow, uh, it doesn't tweak you too bad. And so. Yeah. It's talking the, about snapping uh, flat faces off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, so, and so like those hammers I can just grab and use. But like I always want the flat side to not be perfectly flat or cupped. I want it to be slightly domed, to be forgiving, Pillow. soft edges. Yep, exactly. Like same thing with the sledgehammer. If you just pick up some random big sledgehammer, you want it forgiving. You know, you don't want it to leave big pucker marks in the shoe. So I, I heard a I heard a really smart blacksmith guy that he was like he might not be that smart, but this part he said was pretty <laughs> genius. So he was like, it needs to be pillowed as much as it can go in depth. Sure. So a two pound hammer can only probably you know if you hit something it can only go an eighth of an inch. So it needs to have yep. at least of a three sixteenths of a pillow so it doesn't dent. Yep. And so like a sledgehammer will need more pillow because it can go deeper with its swing that dude thought uh, about I, it I th- yeah this guy he probably thought more than he actually swung a hammer but it worked out <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like he can relay yeah. it to a guy like like you and then it's like well now i can get to put to work exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah I, th- I thought that was an interesting little like uh, equation that he had there kind of kind of worked out yep but I, yep. you, you hear people say that, or they're like, "Well, I want a completely flat face." Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it's gonna, gonna work out for them too much. Yeah, I feel like the bigger the face and the flatter the face, the less forgiving it is. For you sure. Know? Like some have people- you found that too with like uh, you, just like me and some of the other people, we've kind of all went down the rabbit hole, the long, 
nose driving hammers. Yeah. And so you thing. put a pretty small face on the driving hammers. <clears throat> Aim small, miss small. Yeah. You know? And so I, th- I, th- I think that's where people like they get a long nose one with a big face and that's yeah. when they, that's when they might feel weird. To yeah. Them. And they get, they get kind of uh, a weird torque in the, in the handle. You know, if you don't have it perfectly centered, it kind of wants to twist the whole hammer because it's got that long nose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, little, a little, like it either feels good or it feels real bad. Yeah. The biggest, the biggest thing that I've noticed with those long nose hammers is all the way it's got to be forward in the nose. It can't be in the body. It can't be in the mass of the, the eye because then mm-hmm. it's got a rotational twist in it before you even have a miss hit because all the weights in the middle versus the end, you know? Oh, I, I think you, you, like, no pun intended, like, <laughs> hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, because it, it is true. Like, it, it, it steadies itself out. Like, it's kind yeah. of, you know, veins itself and starts following yard darts on the way down and on the yeah. way up. It's pretty There's a reason why the broadhead's the heaviest part of the arrow. Yeah, exactly. You know. But on that turn, so it's like the claws of a driving hammer are one of the main reasons I don't ever want to make driving hammers. Why is that? Because they're just so hard. It's like, <laughs> they are a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. It's either, either like, so like I, the way I do them is I fuller them from the bottom. I start to hot cut them from the bottom and then I cut them vertically down. Yep. It, well, like either throughout this whole process, if you're just off a little bit. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. It's fucking crooked as hell. It's like <laughs> shit. Like, like, you, like you can never get it straight again yep yeah it, it is like uh the claw of the hammer is so like i, I don't think it, like even when you talk to poor i think like he has a better understanding probably all of us that makes a, a nail ring correctly yep, yep. but like are do you ring nails yep and so what do you when you're making your driving hammer what do you try to put into it to make it that it's going to be nice to ring nails so what are the two main reasons that are two main big things that you want from a claw when you ring a nail? You want it to ring the nail and you want it to let go of the fucking nail. Release. Exactly. So if it doesn't do both of those things, the claw yep. sucks. It can do one of them really good, but if it doesn't do the other one, they suck. I would add I would add even a third. It needs to have a short action. That's depending on where the last part of the cut is of the claw in relation to the handle. Mm. The closer you, on that. The closer <laughs> you have the, the point of the V to the wooden yep. handle, the yes, shorter yes. the action. Do you think angle of the claw plays in? I think the angle the angle of the claw can play in and shorten that axis if there's a lot of angle. Yeah, I know exactly. Yep. So like if you if you had a lot of angle, it could be a little bit further from the handle because then the handle is going to go over it where your hand's going to be to ring it. Does that make sense? Yes. The flatter it is, the closer it needs to be. Exactly. And like so I don't have a lot of pitch on my claw on the hammers that I make because to me I don't want it I don't want to have to position the handle if I have to pull the nail way way down on the arc right so if there's a lot of arc on your hand on the the hook your handle's got to come way far for that hook to come in the nail and then you got to start from there but if it's close to a 90 
you just slap in and your handle's at a 90 from the shoe and it pops it right out. Yeah. And so the, 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 the aeronomics of it are closer or easier. That makes sense. It does make sense. Cause it is the thing that I like I, I run into there is like that if it's too straight out though, then it seems like it's hard to get underneath the horse on the inside when you're yeah. in the inside nails. Yep. It can be a little bit tougher, but it, it, as long as it's a good ringer and it takes like a quarter turn to ring it, it's not, I don't, then it's not so bad. So what, well, how I'm do a you, folder. you're a folder. <laughs> so this is kind of like, yeah, I'm a folder. So this is kind of almost like <laughs> above your head. I don't really care the, about ringing. <laughs> I'm all over the board. Sometimes I leave it straight up. Yeah. I'm, I'm a folder. Like, <laughs> yeah. So how, I'm, what do you think you got to do to make it release? So I think, so if you could, if you could, if you can imagine in your brain when you when you have a piece of steel and you have a really wide hot cut and you're cutting it, it's going to leave a really big trough, right? Mm-hmm. And you get it pretty thin. And yep. if you cut it where it severs it all the way down, you have two razor edges, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the two razor edges don't cut anything because it just spins around the nail, right? It just creates a track and it spins. So you need a little bit of flat left with that big open V on the bottom of it. And so when you have that little bit of flat left on either side, then it twists the nail. So it, it shears and breaks off. And if there's nothing sharp, it releases the nail. But that is, again, that is all a lot harder done than said. No, I think you're, you're right on it. Can you send me some pictures of some of the uh, the driving hammers you've made so that I can throw them up on the uh, the video portion? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. So people can yeah. check them out. Yeah. I definitely don't mass produce them, that's for sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's you cuz you make is there anything you make to sell that or like because you've pretty much made all tools. Like I know? I've sold a little bit of most of them all that I've made like I don't know like I guess I like the challenge of it. So the way I started driving hammers one day is like, I have, to be honest, I have no clue what made me want to make a driving hammer that day. Like I came home. Everybody was baking them though. It's kind of that time. Not everybody, but there was a few that are like, we were all trying to figure out how to make those long notes. Yeah. And so like I'd seen a couple of Andy Reader Smith, uh, had made and, and thought they were pretty cool. And I, I kind of chewed on them for a little while and like thought about how I'd go about it. And I came home from shoeing one day on a random day and just was like, I'm going to make a driving hammer today. And I still have yeah. that one in my shoeing box in the shop and it, it rings like a song bitch. And I think it was just dumb luck. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, I've, I've probably made, I don't know. I, I probably made a couple of them then there in the beginning and, and then kind of like saw some problems in them, saw what I wanted to change and then slowly developed the style that I have now and none of them are exactly identical, but they all have the same kind of lines in them. And to be honest now, I, I, I really don't care if I make another one because I got the challenge of understanding them and yeah. figuring them out is it's, it's not as driving as it was, you know, <clears throat> it's so, it's so funny that it's like, so 
I find I do that myself of like with like items, you know, mm-hmm. like I make one and I'm done with it. You know, it's like, well, I made that axe. I don't want to make another axe. Yeah. And it's like, I haven't made a drive hammer in quite a while. I'm like, I got kind of got them figured out. I got the process figured out. Yeah. Done just fucking around with those. But horseshoeing never gives me that. No, horseshoes never do. No, I would agree. Yeah. It's, I it's, never it's get sick of making It's an interesting deal. Yeah. No, I, I'm never... It's the same thing as, like, I'm okay putting my name on tools. I hate putting my name on horseshoes. Yeah, I agree. I feel I, because I, I'm never happy with it. I'm like, yeah. man, I'm putting my name on something that I just, like, yeah, kind of pile of shit in my mind. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's kind of one of those things where, like, to be honest, I can make three quarter flirt shoes for the next year and never get bored. Like, yeah. just a That's, just a good basic three quarter flirt shoe. Like there's still, you're still going to find little things in there to, Oh yeah. I love, like I'm one of those weird dudes that likes the journeyman class at the convention. Really? (laughs) I love that. What's your, what's your favorite thing about it? It's, there's just no time for bullshit. You need to know what every hammer blow does and duplicate it. Like, I'm not saying that like I haven't figured out. I'm just saying like, I love that challenge of that class. You you would you would like the class that Austin likes too. It's like a bad, <laughs> he likes like, that class. You you planned motherfuckers are yeah. just like every handle is gonna be perfect and replicated each That's time. Like, yeah. yeah. Same thing, yeah. That yeah. is super freaking funny. Yeah. Something I've kind of been stewing on like this whole time ever since you brought it up about um you know, leaving foot or leaving depth on feet, you know, but the thing that has been chewing on me is that there's going to be somebody out there. that's going to say, Oh, but he doesn't shoot performance horses. You can't do them like that. Like you can't leave the depth on there. So what's like kind of a rebuttal to that? You know what I mean? Like, cause you know, there's always going to be somebody out there. that's going to be hating and be like, Oh, he just shoes backyard horses or whatever type situation. And yeah. Yeah. No, like, I mean, I don't shoe horses going to the Olympics now. I think that's a lot of location and, and opportunity and, and so on and so forth. But there was a horse at the NFR running in the barrels that I shot all summer that got her to the NFR. I mean, yeah, I, I've shot performance horses. like, And it's funny, too, because like, there's a lot of horses that I've, I've shot and that I shoot currently that they make a living every day. Like, they not still, in a show The horses ring. still perform. Well, not in a show ring. Like an actual yeah. living on a working ranch, like okay, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, they're, they're working for a living just as much, if not more, than those horses just going into the show ring. I would hate mm-hmm. to say it. They're working more so. Yeah, they get worked a, heck yeah. a lot harder. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Where like those horses in the show rings, like I, I sh- I shoot some show horse, and they're like, well, he got a two hour workout today. That's pretty hard, and it's like, yeah, that horse on the ranch is putting in more than two hours. He he yeah. exactly. Is exactly and in conditions that are 10 times more challenging than any show footing is you know yeah mm-hmm. so just something we see yeah. on social media that just gets beat oh, yeah. around all the time like that you know yeah. that wouldn't work in my profession or my area or whatever but really like you know if you're able to just shoot feet and keep feet healthy like the horse is going to be able to do its job yeah you know exactly and being and, able and, to understand and do that and to me it it, the test is always um, graded when you come back to your to your clients. You know, when I come back in six weeks or five weeks or ten weeks, 
do I have a shit show that I got to deal with that I made? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or do I just pop the shoe off, smoke the bugger right back on and spike it and roll on? And it's super easy. It's healthy. It's strong. You know what I mean? Yep. So it, it's, it's hard to argue when you're like, you are obviously a very self-aware person that would be able, okay with yourself being like, that was shit. I need mm-hmm. to fix it. Yeah, exactly. And like, I feel like once you shoe horses long enough, the, the little voices in your head when you're shooing a horse, what determines quality that you can let slide or not slide is, is it going to create a problem or not? You know? Yeah. Having that repertoire in your head of knowing what's going to be completely detrimental or what's can slide on. Exactly. That's a great, that's where I think your experience, like I wish I could pay to every time one of those guys is like, yeah, that wouldn't work here. It'd be like, I wish I could pay for like you to fly to his place and shoe the horse and be like, all right, tell me that shit. Yeah. Tell tell me that wasn't good. (laughs) This isn't going to work out. It's going to be bad because it is like, it's just an excuse that we all like to use of the old. And I love that you included everybody else that we've interviewed so far has never given us the answer of like, it depends. It depends. Yeah. Like you have a plan of attack and you have something that you're going to do. You're not just going to like pull the easy out of like, ah, that depends horse to horse. You're like, no, this is my basics. Yeah. And there, there is like a foundation of basics in horseshoeing like that either determines a shit shoeing or a good shoeing. Like, I don't care what style you shoe in, what discipline you shoe in, what environment you shoe in. If you don't cover those basics, I'm sorry. It's, it's shit shoeing. Like, Yep. It just is, you know, and the yeah, horse is going to tell you it's it is. hard for people to say that for to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and there's a reason why guys like Craig are still working on the basics. You know, they're not easily obtained. No, no, they definitely are not, you know, but, and I think that's the bad part about social media. Like there's a really good learning aspects from, you know, YouTube, what like you guys are doing, um, Facebook, like all the videos and stuff like it's, it's a good place for a lot of learning, but there's also a lot of bad stuff that goes on. I feel like that does not help the trade or the profession at all. No, but it's, how do you go without it? You got it. Like it's just part of the times these days, you know, and like, just almost have to just decipher between the good and the bad and being able to understand what is good and being able to try to push, you know, what is good. So it's yep. kind of, you know, kind of what Riley and I are trying to do is like try to push what's good out yep. there, you know, try to get it more amongst the math. Everybody's going to have their own opinion of what's good and what's bad. So it's like the only way for the bad, it's almost, is, the bad's never going to shut the fuck up. And so it's, yeah. like, it's almost if, like if we don't bad speak, spreads, bad spreads faster than good. It oh, seems like, right. You know, so. Yep. somebody's got to try and do something right yep exactly and i and i applaud you guys for doing it like you guys are doing a good job like it's it's one of those things where it's hard to please everybody and you're never going to please everybody but it's kind of one never. of those things where if somebody's got a major discrepancy on what you guys are doing there's nothing stopping them from doing it mm-hmm. nope do your own thing and that's yep. like honestly just like you guys like you saying that you think we're doing a good thing that goes a hundred times further with me than those guys saying that we're doing a bad thing. I don't give a fuck about those guys. They aren't my crowd anyways. No. Uh, yeah. And it's like, I, I'm not trying to be rude of saying that, but it's like, you're always going to find your own crowd. And if you just don't, aren't liking what we're saying, then it's probably just like, it's just, there's somebody yeah. out there saying 
what you want to hear. Yep. Just go, go find your people and be be happier. Don't be yep. such, a, yep. such a, a sour sport about the whole Yeah, exactly. Thing. And I feel like it's kind of an environment, too, where the people that, I guess, don't know, don't have the filter to not say stuff. And they say stuff like you're kind of commenting on, Gavin, like, you know, somebody's saying that, you know, it won't work in my area. Well, you can you can do it in different manners. You know what I mean? Like, you can do it in manners that you're trying to, like, present yourself in a learning environment or you're just trying to yeah. you know, be a shithead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can it. go. You can reword yeah. that question pretty well. Yeah. Of saying of like, wow, I don't know how I could do that. Could somebody help me out here? Exactly. <laughs> like, this exactly. Is like, yeah. Yeah. It's a completely. Yeah. Well, Tom, for you, so the question that I've been asking people uh, as of late is, who are like on? I consider like a Mount Rushmore four people that you consider to be monumental in your life. Like who would four people be to you that you look up to and uh, kind of value as far as where I've brought you to where you are now? Um, the probably the first and foremost guy probably would be, and has nothing to do with horseshoeing. Um, That's fine. Is one of the if dairy dude, farmers I worked at or worked for. I was going to say, if you um, say David Goggins. <laughs> yeah, <with that. laughs> no these these are all people that like i've met you know what i mean and like okay. actually in my life uh, <laughs> but uh his his name is is ronnie molitor and uh just a super good dude and he was the type of guy that uh always had a smile on his face always was positive even when when the the biggest problems and major disasters were going on in the dairy farm he still had a good attitude about it. And he taught me a lot about just being a good man. You know what I mean? Having a good work ethic and just good mindset. Um, it's important. Yeah. And I've never met another human being that worked as hard as that guy did. Like, you know. And so I guess the other person would definitely be my wife. You know, she's taught me not necessarily, again, about horseshoe and stuff, but just, you know, a lot about life and a lot about, you know, just – being a man and, and, and how to communicate in, in all aspects of life, you know, being a better communicator is key in your business is key in, you know, your social environment, you know, everything. Huge. And, and I would, and I would say that Craig's up there, that dude's taught me more about horseshoeing in this career than I could have ever hoped to have learned, you know, especially from mm -hmm. even just one guy. He's, he was mon monumental in my coming through the, the competition and in, in understanding it, what I was actually doing to steal and defeat, you know? Yeah. So. Well, who would be the fourth? That's to be determined. <laughs> to, be, to be determined. Yeah. TBA, TBA. Yeah. I'll, I'll let it slide. Yeah, to be determined. That's a spot that's yeah, always up for slide. grabs. <laughs> yep. Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Man, so, Tom, we uh, unless you got another question for him, Gavin. So we've been sitting here for those of you who are watching on the video. Tom, you're sitting in front of a cat on your wall, and that's a big cat. There, oh yeah. Yeah. Is there a story behind it? Yeah, I killed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah story is that fucker's dead yeah. <laughs> so uh i i shot that um uh it's been a long time it's probably 
I'll say 2008. Um, one of the guys that I apprenticed with a bunch was a very avid hunter. Um, he, he was on the realm of a hunter that would make Jim quick kind of look like he just kind of likes to hunt a little bit. If you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he had some hounds and, and I'd never, uh, been around hounds very much. So it's, and it's really cool hmm. to see that you got a, a hound pup, Riley, and kind of watching that come along. That's, that's kind of a lot of fun for me to watch as well. Cause I've spent a little I'll bit of time you the videos I, I don't post. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Social media. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And I, I've spent enough time around him where like, it's a, it's just a cool, um, a cool thing, you know, to get to use your dog on. And so he had some dogs and we, we treat a bunch of cats and this was a cat that we treat one morning and it was, uh, all right, like we would normally leave his place at like three o'clock in the morning after a fresh snowfall so we could cut tracks and yeah. And, uh, it was about 16 below zero when we left his house that morning, it was cold as shit. And we've cut these tracks right alongside of a river and there was a bunch of deer tracks and the river was kind of frozen, but kind of not frozen. And so we didn't want to let the dogs go right off the bat because one, it was so freaking cold out already. They might've burnt their lungs. And then yeah. second, there was so much trash around there that we were afraid that, that we might be on the race for the next three days. And so <laughs> yeah. we were walking the dogs down through the river and kind of in the brush a little bit. And there was a clearing about 400 yards away in a meadow. And we actually spotted the cat running at a lope across the meadow that she, she heard the dogs. And so as yeah. soon as we saw him, the dogs actually saw her and they didn't even go for the, for the track. They just went straight to her and they treat her Good in dogs. 10 minutes. And yeah. so we, uh, we got to the tree and got moving. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, we got to the tree and it was kind of on a side hill on like a, like a rock slide. <laughs> and she jumped right over the top of our heads and went off running again. And, uh, she ran about a half a mile and they treat her. And she was a bit higher up in this tree and she had her um, front and hind legs spread on two branches. And uh, I had my 44 mag pistol to shoot her with. And so I put through two through her from the bottom of her chest and she jumped down and ran for about 200 yards before she got stuck in some rocks. And then I shot her a couple more times and carried her out. Jeez. And, and I they're mean, they're hardy. tough. Yeah, they're tough. They are very, they're, and it's, it, yeah. A lot of people don't get it. It's like, hey, it's a predator. Oh yeah, yeah. They they have some life in them. Yes, mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a deer. Nope. And they 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 have some some living. And it was interesting too, because when when I shot her, the last time I shot her, um, the guy that I was with said to shoot her one more time, and I was like, well, I think she's got quite a few bullet holes in her. She's like, <laughs> he's like, she's she's far from dead yet. And so then you I still shot got her. bolts in that gun. Yep. <laughs> I shot her one more time. Uh, and she arched her back up and, you know, let out a big scream. And yeah. then he was like, all right, now she's going to die. And yeah. I was like, man, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't have thought that. I mean. Yeah. But it was a fun hunt. And, uh, she, uh, she was probably an average size female, probably about four years old four or five years old and weighed about 110 115 pounds yeah yeah so not a bad cat yeah but there's a lot of cats in montana though yeah there's right yeah there is i mean i think the best day that we were treating cats i think we treat five different cats in one day that's a great like, not meaning that you're shooting them nope just treating you're them. not shooting all you're just treating them yep. yeah so just so people understand that all the all the cats that um we treat 
we only shot two of. This was one That's of them, the and then he shot one That's the best part about running dogs is you're, you can be yeah. so selective. Yep. So selective when whether you, you have to be let them go. Yeah, well, you have to be with, like, the quotas and stuff. You're allowed a certain number of male and female cats in each region, and you have yeah. to know where the quota is for that day before you can yep. shoot one. You know, they, mm. they regulate it really well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so. It is the best way to, to take care of the cats. Really. Yeah. And it's, and it's amazing too, because like you get to watch your dogs work, you know, it's like taking your dog yeah. pheasant hunting, but never shooting a pheasant. You yeah. Know? It kind of sucks. I owned bird dogs before hounds. And mm-hmm. uh, I gotta say, flushing a pheasant ain't got shit on running a cat. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> yeah. When, you, when you're standing you the underneath dog a tree and on cat. something. Yeah. yeah, tree and stuff is pretty damn cool. <laughs> like yep. It's, yep. it's pretty yeah. cool to see that that dog cast yep. out with oh, so far away from you, and he is doing or she they're doing their thing. Like yeah, that, they're doing their is, job. Yeah, cat and dog are yep. all a part of this. You know, they they naturally know what to do with each other. It's pretty yep. cool. The cool part about when you get to the trees, you don't know what you're going to see up it. You might see a bobcat. <laughs> you might see a mountain lion. You might see yep. a bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it might, might get interesting. Yep. Man, yep. we appreciate you taking the time, Tom, uh, to get on here, spread some of your knowledge, let people get to know you. Uh, we really appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, man. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for having me. We'll see you here in the next uh, few months then. Yeah, you bet. Look forward to it. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Tom. You bet. You guys have a good night. You could just...